September 13, 1980, Fremont County, Wyoming. Gerald Uden is taking his two adopted sons, Richard and Reagan, bird hunting. His ex-wife, Virginia, had been giving him heartburn over child support payments, something that didn't sit well with Gerald's new bride, Alice. When the boys and their mother disappear that day and their abandoned car is found weeks later, police are stumped. But when this sordid tale begins to unfold, Gerald and his wife, Alice, are more than married. They're murderers with five secret dead bodies between them. This is Alice and Gerald Uden, Love and Buried Bodies. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Podorf. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our special friends down in Texas. <gasps> yeah. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Howdy, Texas. <laughs> we got a lot of listeners down there in Texas. Yes, we do. The stars at night are big and bright. I can't clap because I'll send Rob in the control booth, like, over the edge. I'll let Scotty do it. It's just like Pee Wee Herman. There you go. (laughs) Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. Subscribe wherever you're listening right now to the podcast. And if you're watching us on YouTube today, be sure to hit that subscribe button below. Yes. Don't forget, you can follow us on social media at Hitch to Homicide on Instagram and H2H underscore podcast on X. There you go. And speaking of following, if you want more true crime, please join the H2H In-Laws and Outlaws, our closed Facebook group. Yep. Where I post photos of the podcast and others in our crew like to post things like the words, women are told we catch more flies with honey, but I can catch plenty with your hollowed out carcass. <laughs> so this could go either way. Oh my God. Beautifully cross-stitched. Wow. Thank you, Sean Jones. <laughs> That's funny. And to highlight a listener's story from our emails and comments, this one's from our in-law and outlaw, Chuck Urso, who is a former sergeant at the L.A. Police Department. Oh. What a cool guy. He yeah. comments a lot. He's got some stories, I'm sure. But when we did the Dorothy Stratton story, the playboy bunny who was murdered by her smarmy husband, right. Chuck told us, quote, while working for Playboy, I got to know Dorothy's sister, who was hooked up with Peter Bogdanovich. Oh, wow. He also said that Hef never got over Dorothy's murder. We love hearing information from people who were actually there. So oh, yeah. thank you, Chuck. We appreciate everybody's comments and emails. And now we even have a place on our website to submit a crazy story or interaction you've had with true crime yourself. So go check it out. So our, our phrase for the day is, be like Chuck. Be, be like Chuck. <laughs> Not everybody can be like Chuck because yeah. Chuck's ex-LAPD. Right, exactly. Although I think once you're a police officer, you're always a police officer. Like being a Marine. Love the men in blue. Yep. Love everything that they do. Absolutely. First responders, nobody like them. Thanks for your service, Chuck. Absolutely. Well, before we get started on this crazy case... 
that is going to span almost 40 years. Wow. Let me thank some sources. All right. The Wyoming Tribune, Oxygen's Snapped Killer Couples, Find a Grave, Murderpedia, Cowboy State Daily, People Magazine, and the book Alice and Gerald, A Homicidal Love Story by Ron Francell. I did read it, and I will have a link to it and all the other sources in the show notes. A homicidal love story. A homicidal love story. That's what we're doing today. This may be my new favorite book. There you go. All right. Well, you ready to go? I am. Let's do it. Alice Louise Barbier Uden is born on March 8th, 1939 in Christian County, Missouri, which is the southwestern part of the state. Her mother was an unwed teenager from Denver and she is adopted by Sam and Vivian Barbier. When Alice is 16, she gets married and becomes pregnant. Wow. I don't know the order of that, if she got pregnant and then got married, or married and then got pregnant. Okay, right. And she married a World War II vet, and she quickly had four kids, got divorced. Oh, wow. (laughs) Her ex-husband was in Illinois, and the children stayed with him, although I read that they were with several relatives. Hmm. And from time to time, we're also with her. She very quickly got married again to Donald Jr. Prunty. Okay. Don was born on October 8th, 1926 in Hancock County, Illinois. He's 13 years older than Alice, and Alice is his second wife. Don brought her to Wyoming to take care of a ranch, the Remount Ranch. And I looked up the Remount Ranch, and it actually dates back to 1875. Wow. Its original ranch house property was called Lone Tree Ranch, and it was purchased in 1886 by Thomas Gunston, and it was a place where outlaw Tom Horn used to hang out (laughs) and hide out when federal agents were looking for him for murder. Wow. It's also the home of Mary O'Hara, who wrote many books and short stories, but her most famous was My Friend Flicka. Oh, really? Read that a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Don and Alice have one child, a baby girl. They name her Erica. Then Don dies at the age of 45 from a bunch of illnesses from his alcoholism. There was a note in his medical chart that Alice was giving Don something to help him stop drinking. wonder what that was. There was no autopsy. Hmm. That's called foreshadowing. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wait a minute. There you go. Yes. <laughs> Dawn died on July 23rd, 1973, leaving her with little baby Erica. Okay. Then later in 1973, Alice starts working as a nurse in the psych ward at a VA hospital in Sheridan, Wyoming. She's 35 when she meets a patient in the ward, 23-year-old Ronald Lee Holtz. Mm. Ronald is born on August 30th, 1950. He served in Vietnam as a helicopter door gunner. Hmm. And by the time he was discharged in 1970, he was a Section 8. Isn't that what Klinger always wanted to be? Yeah, exactly. If you've ever watched uh, MASH, Corporal Klinger. Yeah, he was looking for a Section 8. Yeah, well, Ron actually was a Section 8. Gotcha. Did they say why he was a Section 8? He was suicidal. He had a lot of he had a lot of issues. Gotcha. Issues all over the place. All right. More issues than Vogue. Okay. <laughs> 
Four years later, he was a patient at the VA trying to get his life back together, and Ronnie liked Alice, even though she's 11 years older mm. than he is. Right. And we'll tell you right now, Alice is a cougar. I was about ready to say the same thing. <laughs> she's a cougar. There you go. And it wasn't very long before these two were married on September 17th, 1974. Ronnie was a cab driver, and Alice worked more than one job, I read. Okay. But all three of them including her little girl, Erica, from her last marriage, mm -hmm. lived in a trailer outside of Cheyenne. But Ron was also an alcoholic, and his marriage with Alice is only going to last about four and a half months. Whoa. And by December of 1974, after they've been married, Ronnie's friends hadn't heard from him. Hmm. But he was known to skip town without telling anybody. Okay. She files for divorce in February of 1975. The divorce is uncontested. Ronnie never even showed up to sign the divorce papers. Really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. I think I get it. <laughs> you seeing a pattern here already? Yeah. Yeah, can't fool me. <laughs> now, in the summer of 1964, Gerald Lee Uden came to Wyoming. He'd just been discharged from the Navy after four years where he was aboard the USS Independence as a radio man listening for Soviet subs off the coast of the Carolinas. Oh, wow. I knew Rob would love that. That's pretty cool. Rob's all about World War II. Yeah. He was originally from Harvard, Nebraska, which is a tiny little town. And Gerald's parents, Lloyd and Betty, later moved them to Lander, Wyoming when he's a kid. Gerald was born in 1941. He was really close to his family. His grandparents in Nebraska lived close by on their own farmland. And the family as a whole went to church together. They ate together. They did lots of things together. Those good Midwest people. It was good Midwestern people hanging out together, going to church. Casserole. These are casserole people. <laughs> They've got the best recipes for casseroles. I remember those potluck dinners at my little country church in Ohio. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Now, Nebraska is where Gerald learned to shoot, hunt, and fix cars. And when he's 17, he leaves Nebraska and heads west. But he didn't get too far because his car broke down and his dad had to come pick him up. <laughs> and not long after, Gerald joined the Navy. He's only 17, so he needs his father's permission. And after serving his country, he heads to... Wyoming. Mm. Gerald took a job at U.S. Steel fixing equipment, and on the weekends, he liked to hunt, and he was a sharpshooter, something that he honed in the Navy. That's cool. That's also called foreshadowing. <laughs> Wait. Okay, one more. <laughs> Listen, if I foreshadowed all of these, you'd just be on the piano the whole time. I'd run out of keys. You'd run out of something, energy. <laughs> But he's a collector, and he liked to keep guns. He collected guns, and he liked to keep them in immaculate condition. You know how collectors are, like, very careful with all of their things that they collect. Kind of like my studio equipment. I was thinking 40-year-old virgin where he's just got all – he's got Aquaman oh, yeah. <laughs> from, like, 19-whatever, 50. Yeah. He's and, never been out of the box. Yeah, pristine condition. <laughs> and I get it. Those things are worth a ton of money. Yeah. Just just not my, um, not my cup of tea. Aren't you glad I don't collect toys? <laughs> no, you collect musical instruments. Yeah, true. <laughs> Guitars. They're all lined up. <laughs> Pretty maids all in a row. Yes. <laughs> In the fall of 1963, 
Gerald meets Barbara Ann Phillips. She lived next door, and she was impressed with Gerald's marksmanship. I mean, you know, how do you get a woman out there? Show her what a good shot you are. Exactly. And I read that overnight, Gerald was, quote, ass over tea kettle in love, end quote. (laughs) I've never heard that one. Ass over tea kettle? No. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm from the north. Come on. (laughs) Give me a break. (laughs) We barely had verbs. I've also heard ass over tit, too. So, <laughs> Ass over kettle. But he was ass over tea kettle in love with Barbara Ann. She's only 17 and still in high school. Hmm. He's 21. He's just back from being in the Navy. Yeah. She graduates early and they get married at Christmas. And after living in an apartment, they moved into a trailer on Gerald's parents' land. Now, Barbara Ann, she took birth control pills because she didn't want to get pregnant right away. Mm -hmm. Why would she? She's 17. Sure. But they can also cause blood clots in women, and this is exactly what happened to Barbara Ann. Hmm. And she almost died. She was in the hospital. Wow. But when she made it home from the hospital, Gerald wanted her doing her chores (laughs) and being his wife in and out of the bedroom. And she'd almost died like two weeks before that. So she packed up her bags, and Barbara Ann got herself a divorce. Oh, wow. Walked out the wow. door. She was like 17 years old and going, uh, yeah. no thank you. Out of here. Gerald dated around a little bit until one day in 1974, Virginia Beard showed up on his doorstep asking him to appraise a rifle, a twenty-two from her grandfather. And when he tells her what it's worth, she's a little upset because she needs money. Virginia is a single mom coming back to town with two young sons. She had an ex-husband who was not paying child support. Mm. So Gerald, who was taken with Virginia, he starts helping her out with little things around the house. And her boys, Richard and Reagan, they were four and six at the time. And Gerald thought, these kids need a father. Now, the boys were Richard Lauren, who was born on November 22nd, 1968. He was the oldest. He was smart, and he wore really big glasses, Hmm. but his mom also wore glasses. He liked sports and radio-controlled things. Mm -hmm. Rob likes Mm radio-controlled things, too. Reagan Cordell was the youngest and was born on May 25th, 1970. He was always on the move, maybe a little bit hyperactive, but Gerald thought he had found a ready-made family. Virginia introduced Gerald to her mother, Claire Martin, also a single mom, to Virginia. And she was a strong, independent woman. She was happy Virginia had found somebody, and three months after they meet, he asked Virginia to marry him. Wow. She agreed, and they married just a few days later, on July 3rd, 1974. You know, I just said, wow, but you and I got engaged four months after we met. Was it only four months? Uh, May, June, July, August, September. Yeah. What was I thinking, y'all? <laughs> and now it's been, what? Almost six, 17 years. Yeah, 17 years. Yeah. You just never know, right? You never know. When it's right, it's right. When it's right, it's right. Uh, none of these are right. Maybe one of these relationships <laughs> is right, but it's pretty deadly. We'll, we'll use ours as the right relationship. Okay, All right. okay. All right. These two boys start calling Gerald dad, and Virginia wanted her ex-husband out of the picture. Mm. And that can only happen if Gerald adopts the boys, and he does in March of 1975. Now, suddenly, he's the father of two. 
But then one year later, they went on vacation to see her estranged father and her stepmom. And out of the blue, Virginia tells Gerald, I'm going to drive to Philadelphia to see some distant relatives. Hmm. Alone. Strange. She buys Gerald a plane ticket and she says that she and the boys are going to stay behind. And Gerald thought they'd be home pretty soon because school was going to start. Sure. But they didn't come back. And Virginia and Gerald start arguing over the phone. He demands that she come home. And finally she does. But when she did and the boys are back, she's not sleeping with him. And the boys are calling him Gerald instead of dad. Whoa. So what happened in Philly? Yeah. A month later, Virginia asked him for a divorce, citing intolerable indignities, end quote. (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't either. I thought it was just irreconcilable (laughs) differences. differences. When the divorce is final, he agreed to keep the boys on his medical insurance at U.S. Steel, where he works, and he also agreed to pay $150 in child support. So they marry in July. Mm -hmm. The following March, he becomes their legal father, and six months later, Virginia files for divorce. And he has no idea why. Yeah, intolerable indignities. That's why. (laughs) Okay. Wow. (laughs) He moved out of their house and went into a trailer. Then Gerald went into a deep depression, and he even contemplated taking his own life. Wow. He did decide, I'm giving up on women. Mm. No more women. How many men out there have said that? I know. I was about ready to say famous last words yeah. by every man who's been scorned. Yeah. No more women. But yeah. women do the same thing. Yeah. No. I don't need a man. Yeah. I don't need no stinking man. <laughs> I don't need no stinking man. Yeah. yeah. Don't need a man. Someday you might want one. <laughs> yeah. But then a new neighbor showed up in the space next to him at the trailer park. Her name was Alice Prunty, and she was the new trailer park manager. She was a widowed nurse and a single mom in her 30s. She'd been married twice, had five kids. Her last husband died two years ago. Hmm. She'd worked as a barmaid, a bus driver, and she even worked as a nurse in a psychiatric hospital. Hmm. She would send her kids to her relatives when money got tight. And they did come back to her, too, at times. But these kids, I think, the first four children are back and forth from Illinois to their mom a lot. All right. When Gerald met her, he thought she had, wait for it, Uh nice boobs. (laughs) Nothing like a set of nice boobs to make a man take back his oath of swearing off women. (laughs) Exactly. He takes her out. He takes her fishing. And in the summer of 1976... Gerald and Alice fall in love. And after making love one night, Alice confesses that she did, in fact, have a third husband, Mm. Ronnie Holtz. Okay. She said he was a little bit crazy. He'd been kicked out of the army while serving in Vietnam for being unstable and that she'd met him while she was working at the VA psych ward. They fell in love, ran off and got married. They lived in Cheyenne. He drove a cab. And then she tells him he started beating her and threatening the baby when she cried, saying he had killed babies in Vietnam and he would kill her, too. Wow. Then one night at Christmas, Ronnie Hulse went off the deep end and Alice tells Gerald that she shot him before he could hurt the baby. Hmm. It was self-defense and she didn't have a choice. 
She stuffed his body in a cardboard storage barrel, rolled him out the front door onto the porch, and dropped him into the back of her pinto. Oh, wow. Then she drove to an abandoned mine shaft on the ranch she had managed with her other late husband, Don Prunty, the Remount Ranch. There, she knew of an old gold mine shaft. It was deep, so deep that when farm animals died, they'd throw them down the mine shaft. Mm. And this is exactly what she did. She rolls him out of the pinto and into the mine shaft. Wow. She went home, packed up, and left before anyone could miss either one of them. Jeez. And a few months later, when she filed for that divorce, she claimed abandonment. And on cue, he doesn't show up in court <laughs> because he's dead yeah, exactly. and down in a mine shaft. Yeah, that's pretty hard to get out of. But she's telling Gerald this whole story, and she's crying that night, and she told him that she didn't know if he could still love her after she had confessed what she did. And Gerald told her right there, he promised her he would never tell a soul. Gerald, run away. <laughs> run away. It's too late now, <laughs> because as soon as his divorce is final from his second wife, Virginia, in mid-October of 1976, he married his third wife, Alice, on November 5th, 1976. Hmm. Like two weeks after his divorce is final. Wow. On the marriage certificate, she listed herself as a widow. <laughs> she is. She's a black widow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Gerald was still working for the steel company, and Alice was working a new nursing job at the Lander Hospital. Now, Gerald loved her very much, and in return, she loved that he loved her so very much. Okay. I do think that she loved him yeah. as much as she was capable. Sure. But I really think Gerald was just ass over tea kettle again. <laughs> Alice and Gerald attended the hospital's New Year's Eve party. And who should be there? But Barbara Ann, Gerald's first wife. Oh, wow. She also worked at the hospital. Okay. Small town. Yeah. Small world. Yeah. She comes up to their table at the party and flirts with Gerald and Skips away. <laughs> and after that, Alice was madder than a wet hen, yeah. saying, quote, Who the hell does she think she is? <laughs> Old lovers can't come back and ex-wives should disappear forever. End quote. Is that foreshadowing? That's called <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> I'm not even going to play the foreshadowing. This is what I'm going to play. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much that. Yeah. I hope you can find some more keys by the time we get to the end of this. Wow. In the spring, they bought 20 acres east of Pavilion, Wyoming. They moved Alice's trailer there. And after a bit, Alice's son, Michael, moved in with them. He'd been living in Illinois with relatives, he and his two brothers and a sister. Michael joined the future Farmers of America while he was living with his mom and Gerald. And every member had to have a farm project. Okay. An agribusiness. Sure. So Gerald built a hog pen and filled it with pigs for Michael. Okay. Gerald really likes being a dad. Yeah. Eventually, Gerald and Alice invited her adoptive parents, Sam and Vivian, to live on the property. So they bought their trailer. And life was good until Virginia came back into their lives. Mm. And she did not like it that Gerald was so in love with Alice. Well, Virginia, uh, yeah. you gave him up. Yeah. Wow. 
Gerald was paying his child support for the most part. Mm -hmm. And since he was the boy's legal father, he could see them whenever he wanted. But that got less and less because Virginia didn't like Alice and Alice didn't like the boys being around. Mm -hmm. And if he ran into Virginia and the boys while he was out with Alice, the two of them pretended they didn't even know Virginia or the boys. Mm -hmm. And I also read that Alice didn't allow Gerald to go to the boys' activities or their school programs. Wow. Which is kind of horrible. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not good. By the summer of 1978, Virginia borrowed money and took the boys to Pennsylvania. She's going to be gone for three years. She never had a steady job. And when she did, it was minimum wage. She used the boys' child support to live off of. And when the boys were sick, Gerald's health care insurance was really a hassle to pay the bill. Mm. So she started calling Gerald and writing nasty letters demanding child support, something that went over with Alice like a big old lead balloon. <laughs> and she wrote Virginia a letter that said, Virginia, Gerald and I enjoyed your letter as we always do. It appears to me that you have the idea that I try to keep your messages, letters, and phone calls from my husband we keep no secrets from one another. We have a lot of laughs at your expense. It is very difficult for either one of us to understand how any human being can be as brainless as you are. <laughs> if you get the idea that I don't like you, you're very correct. I have no use for any woman that does not have the mind, backbone, or guts to stand on her own two feet and take care of herself and her kids by herself without raping some poor man's pocket. Any woman that can't do that is a worthless piece of garbage. I worked, supported five children, which I think is a little rich considering she sent them off to live with other relatives, right? Yeah. She continues, and I also had to give my tax money to support leeches like you <laughs> who are too lazy to go out and get a good enough job to take care of your own. You are the worst of the worst of your kind. Wow. Everyone in the family knows how you hounded Gerald to adopt your kids so he could wind up supporting them since their father wouldn't. You're quite a con artist. Most lazy trash are. <sighs> Gerald must have really tried to hold his marriage together by adopting your boys because he doesn't even like kids. He swallowed your line, hook line, and sinker, and now he pays for it. He was hoping the power plant, meaning the Three Mile Island nuclear plant that was in crisis at the time, would explode and take you with it. <laughs> it's really a shame that it didn't. Oh, wow. She ends the letter with some more nastiness about Virginia claiming she didn't get her last child support payment. But Virginia kept the letter and wrote on the back of it, Alice, Spring 1979. Whoa. And thus started the phrase... Poking the bear. Yeah. These two women, <laughs> these two women hate each other yeah. and there are two kids caught in the middle of this. Wow. Virginia wrote her back, but that letter seems to be lost by Alice, who wrote back again on January 26, saying, in part, my opinion of you has changed. Unfortunately, I gave you credit for a little more intelligence than you actually have. <laughs> and again, Virginia keeps the letter and writes January 1980 on the back of it. Wow. Now, a few days later, another letter arrives in Virginia's mailbox. It wasn't dated or signed, but it looked like Gerald's handwriting. It's five pages long. And most think Alice wrote it for Gerald to copy because it sounds more like Alice. Hmm. And in the letter, Gerald tells her he's going to take the boys and he and Alice would raise them. Okay. 
He says that she's not a good influence on the boys. He tells her that when the boys reach 14, they can tell the court who they want to live with. Right. And that he and Alice were going to do everything they could to bring them back, to live with them. Okay. And then he writes, quote, there's only one way you can stop all of this, and that is to have the adoption set aside and declared null and void, end quote. Wow. But before Virginia could even reply, another letter arrives where she states that they had sent a payment and that she was looking forward to meeting her new sons and that they will, quote, love their new mother, end quote. Man. So really, she's just trying to get her to say, okay, Gerald doesn't need to be their father anymore because I don't want you raising my child. Right. Yeah. It's going to backfire. Oh, uh-oh. Yeah. Because Alice and Gerald just keep sending more and more letters with threats of lawsuits. And by mid-February, Virginia sends a letter to the district judge in Lander asking if these threats from Alice and Gerald would help her take them to court because she's kept all these letters. She talks about how they mistreat her boys when they're with their father and that the boys knew all about these nasty letters. And the judge writes back to her and sends a copy of his letter to Alice and Gerald saying that it wasn't appropriate for the court to offer advice. Yeah, I was going to say, why is she sending it to the judge? Yeah, you're adults. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah, or either that to get an attorney. So Virginia filed a complaint in New Jersey's domestic relations court saying that Gerald hadn't been paying his child support. But Alice and Gerald had receipts and the court ruled against Virginia. Hmm. So when the summer came, Virginia took the boys back to Wyoming where she'd have some help and could be with her family, her mom, Claire Martin. Sure. And now Gerald and Alice find out that Virginia's back in town, but this kind of puts them in a little bit of a quandary because they'd written all these letters saying that they wanted the boys. They don't want the boys. Right. So now that Richard and Reagan are just down the street, they're going to be pretty hard-pressed to ignore them. Yeah. So they started taking them on some weekends, but Alice refused to meet Virginia. These two... Will never meet face to face. They're oil and water. Alice would hide in the car. And while Virginia tried to get on her feet, the boys continued to get sick. And all this time, Virginia wanted more child support to help cover medical expenses. The sleepovers with their adopted dad were pretty uneventful. But one time they came home and told their grandmother, Claire, that Alice and Gerald locked them in an old trailer and they had to sleep on a dirty mattress. Oh, But that weekend, they did go on a fishing trip. But when they told the boys to go swimming, they put them in the water and Gerald pulled the boat away from these boys. And instead of helping them back into the boat, he yelled, sink or swim. Jeez. It was how he was going to make them better swimmers. But the boys are panicking and crying. And finally, Alice made him go back and pick them up. And then the fishing trip was over. So that's kind of the guy that Gerald is, too. Yeah. So maybe he was just trying to be like, if if I'm not nice to these boys, they won't want to come stay with us. Right. On Thursday, September 11th, 1980, Gerald calls Virginia and tells her he has a flatbed trailer. He can loan her so she can drive to New Jersey and get her stuff and come back to Wyoming from New Jersey because she came in her car from New Jersey, and she left everything behind. Gotcha. So these two arranged to meet at 2 p.m. on September 2nd at the corner of Tunnel Hill and Williams Roads. So suddenly, 
you know, he's been such an ass, and now he wants to help her. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. So they meet at this corner on September 12th, Tunnel Hill, Williams Roads. It's an isolated area about a half a mile from Alice and Gerald's home. They meet here because Alice wouldn't let Virginia set foot on her property. (laughs) She's going to look at this flatbed trailer and drop the boys with Gerald for a bit because Gerald wanted to take them bird hunting. And Gerald told Virginia, bring your old 22 caliber shotgun. And Claire, Virginia's mom, thinks this is hinky. Yeah, yeah. Because apparently you don't shoot birds with a twenty-two. Yeah. No, you got to get spray on that. But before she takes the boys to meet Gerald, Virginia puts into motion a plan to get more child support. She calls an attorney and has the paperwork put into motion. And the boys overhear this conversation and tell their mom that they don't want the bird hunting to be ruined By the two of them fighting. It's like, come on, mom. We're going to do something fun. Don't mess this up. Right. That morning, Claire, the grandmother, went to the sporting goods store and bought some ammunition for the 22. And at 1.30 p.m., Virginia and the boys drive away. Her mother, Claire, had given her $5 for gas. They're off to meet Gerald. Okay. And when Virginia and the boys arrive at the meeting spot, it's just Gerald and no flatbed truck. Remember, he's supposed to bring a flatbed truck for her to look at. Sure. He's standing on Williams Road, all alone, no car. She pulls up and he slides into the passenger seat and says hello to the boys. Mm -hmm. Virginia asks about the trailer. I'm here to see this trailer. And Gerald tells her that the guy is running late. He tells her to drive a few more miles to a spot he knows that's perfect for shooting. It was around a bend where an irrigation canal passed under a bridge in an area that was very much hidden. Hmm. Gerald gets out of the car and loads the gun, Hmm. first shooting a couple of test shots just to make sure the gun wouldn't jam. Virginia's back is to him, and the boys are sticking close to the car. 11-year-old Richard is sitting on the open tailgate of the station wagon. Good old station wagon. (laughs) Nothing like him. Yep. But while Virginia's back is turned, Gerald puts the muzzle of the gun to her head and fires. Whoa. She drops. Then he turns and fires at Richard, who's sitting on the tailgate. He shot him behind the left ear and watched him fall. Reagan, the youngest, sees Gerald shoot his brother, and he runs off screaming toward this canal. And he stumbles and falls into the water, and Gerald followed him. He stretched out the gun and shot Reagan also behind the ear. Remember, he's a sharpshooter. Sure. Then Gerald shoved their bodies into the back of the station wagon and got out on the road. He drove the bodies back to his house. And according to plan, Alice was at her parents' trailer playing cards. (laughs) The reason for that is twofold. She has an alibi. Sure. And if Gerald makes too much ruckus... She can keep them from going over and investigating what's going on while he's moving bodies from the station wagon to the bed of his pickup truck. Man, they got this whole thing planned out. But Virginia's head is bleeding really bad. And he tried to hose out the blood in the station wagon, but he only makes a bigger mess. Hmm. He gets empty feed sacks from the barn to hide the bodies. Then he drives the station wagon behind the pig barn and goes inside to get his hunting rifle, stopping to tell his in-laws he's going chicken hunting and that he would be back by dark. Okay. He drives the pickup with the dead bodies in the back. He goes a couple of hours away, but he has to stop for gas 
And when he does, a kid comes out of the gas station to pump it for him (laughs) and notices there is something leaking from his truck bed. It's blood. And Gerald tells the kid, that's transmission fluid. (laughs) That's just transmission fluid. Wow. I don't know how transmission fluid is leaking from the bed of your truck. I don't know cars, but I know that that's in the engine part. Yeah, yeah. He leaves this gas station to get gas at a different service station because the pump was jammed with this kid and he wanted to like fix it. Give me a second. And he's like, I don't, he didn't want him around the dead bodies that long. Sure. So he leaves and he goes to a different gas station and he heads to the hidden hand, an abandoned mine. Mm-hmm. He drags the three bodies out of the back of the truck and throws them down the mine 20 feet then places them in a side room at the bottom of the mine shaft called a stope. So he climbs down in this hole, in mm. this mine shaft, 20 feet. Okay. And then he climbs out of the hole and he walks away. It would be a two-hour trip back home. Okay. But by this time, Virginia's mom is worried. And by September 13th, Virginia's mother, Claire, walks into the sheriff's office to say, my daughter is missing. Right. She was supposed to meet up with Gerald to take the boys bird hunting. Claire calls in to check on her, the daughter, the grandsons. Gerald tells her they never showed up. Hmm. And when Claire actually calls Gerald to say, where where are they? Mm-hmm. He's angry with her. Like, yeah, I told him I'd take them bird hunting and they never even showed up. Like he's surly. Yeah. He's salty about it. Yep. Claire's really worried. Gerald and Claire drive around looking for the boys. And while they search, Gerald keeps saying, they just, they didn't show up. They, they just didn't show up. He also tells Claire and her friend Marie, who's now joined in on the hunt, that his wife, Alice, is out looking for the three of them, too. <laughs> Which Claire is like, come on, dude. Yeah. <laughs> sell bullshit somewhere else. Yeah. We're all full up here. Yeah. We all know Alice hates Virginia. She's not out looking for her. And she could care less. That night, under the cover of darkness, Gerald gets Virginia's purse, some coats, bloody clothes, all of this out of the station wagon and into his shed. He drove the station wagon into the mountains while Alice followed close behind. He intends to roll the car into a mile-deep Trout Creek Canyon where it could never be found. Wow. But the car didn't roll into the water, but got lodged on a big old boulder just 100 (laughs) feet from the road And the station wagon's out in plain sight. Wow. But the car wouldn't budge. He locked up the station wagon, smashed the taillights so they wouldn't reflect off somebody's headlights, and then he put pine limbs around the car trying to hide it, and Alice drove them both back home. (laughs) Okay. Wow. That was a complete fail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that, that should be on TikTok. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. If it wasn't so sad yeah. of why he was trying to get rid of this car. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Stupid criminals. Wow. Meanwhile, Virginia's mom, Claire, is just a mess. And the police put out an APB on this brown Ford station wagon with the paneling down the side. Three weeks go by and nothing. October 4th, authorities get a phone call from somebody who was passing by and saw a half-hidden station wagon on the edge of a deep canyon in Wind River Mountains, and the tags match Claire Martin. Hmm. It was the car Virginia was driving when they disappeared. And police find human blood in the back of the station wagon, and they test it, and it's type A, which was Virginia's blood type. Okay. 
Also in the back are 22 caliber shell casings. Mm. So the police are now really worried because it's not looking good. Yeah. But the station wagon is all they have. So they contact the media and release what information they have, hoping somebody's going to come forward with information. Sure. But it's a lot of wide open spaces where they are. Right. People still took to the hills looking for bodies. They have zero leads. They go back to Claire, to the grandma. They want her to tell them about Virginia's life. Who'd she hang out with? Was there anybody she ever mentioned that might not like her or have a problem with her? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is when Claire spills the beans to the police that she thinks Gerald murdered Virginia and her grandsons. Oh, wow. So they say, interesting. Tell us more. Yeah. What was their relationship like? <laughs> and when they discover that these boys in Virginia were a problem in Alice and Gerald's marriage, well, because Virginia wanted more child support Alice sent hateful letters to Virginia, calling her brainless and accusing Mm -hmm. her of tricking Gerald into marrying her. Everybody knows you didn't love him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They hated each other. Yep. And it was all about money. Right. Then on September 20th, a mailgram arrives at Claire's home. It was sent the afternoon before, on the 19th, by V.U. Martin to C. Martin in Riverton, Wyoming. And inside it says, Mom, sorry I have worried you. I am in trouble. The boys are okay. Cover for me. Say I'm in California. We'll write when possible. (laughs) Okay. And Claire's thinking, this is all wrong. She'd taken it off across the country with $5 of gas money. Right. Because here's the thing. Virginia had saved $1,000 in cash, and she stashed it away at her mom's house. She was going to use that to go to New Jersey and get her stuff. Mm. So the $1,000 is still there. Why would she take off with 5 bucks yeah. to California sure. and leave the $1,000 behind? Yeah. Then on September 23rd, a typed letter arrived in Claire's mailbox, postmarked in Riverton the day before. Mom, hope I haven't worried you too much. She tells her mother that she's in Pennsylvania with friends, friends that her mom doesn't know, and that she has money for now, but that was why she was in trouble. And she tells her mom that she can't give away her location and that they may be watching you. She tells her mother she'll be in touch when she can. Hmm. So Claire writes back to this return address and then takes the mailgram to the sheriff's office, and they're like, look. She's fine. There it is in black and white. Your daughter's fine. Yeah. But then on September 25th, another letter comes. And this one says, enclosed are two telegrams that have been sent to my address. There is no one by the name of V.U. Martin at this house. Oh, wow. A lady came in the place where I work and asked if I would send this telegram for her. She gave me some money and the message and left. That was my only contact. I would appreciate it. No further messages be sent to this address. It is very annoying. Wow. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I see the house of cards just about ready to tumble. So Claire goes back to the sheriff and was like, look, I told you. Yeah. And Claire threw a fit to track down another woman who was paid to send the telegrams. She was like, find this woman. She wants to know who signed the letter from V.U. Martin. Sure. And that's when they discovered it's actually yeah. Alice Uden's daughter, oh. 
who'd been asked by her mom to send the telegrams because she had a friend in trouble and she needed to get a message to her mother. Oh, my God. But when Alice's daughter realized that she's in the middle of something, she made her mom promise to visit the sheriff's department and sort it out. Mom, yeah. don't you don't implicate me on in all of this. You go yeah. to the sheriff's department and tell them what's been going on. There's nothing like parental love of throwing your own child under, under the bus. Under the bus. Yeah. Oh, wow. She threw her under the bus and was waiting for it to just go over top of her. Wow. That same afternoon, the Udens walked into the sheriff's office and confessed to sending the bogus telegrams to Claire. Alice cried and told the sheriff that they believed that Virginia was trying to frame them for a crime. <laughs> and at this point, Gerald tells the police to look into Claire because she was the last person who saw Virginia and the boys alive. Okay. Five months after Virginia and the boys go missing, Claire goes into the sheriff's office and says, Look, I know in my bones that Alice and Gerald had something to do with this. And they're like, we don't have any evidence. Right. And Gerald still feels the heat of the eyes of the police. So he starts to worry that those bodies are going to be discovered in that mine shaft. Mm -hmm. So he goes back to Hidden Hand. And in the back of his truck is a couple of old barrels, an empty 55-gallon grease drum, and a 35-gallon galvanized trash barrel, Ugh. both perforated by target practice holes. He hitches up his boat, and after his shift at the steel company, he drives to Hidden Hand at midnight, climbing back down in this mine shaft to retrieve the bodies. Ugh. And one by one, he stuffs them into black plastic trash bags, then ties a rope around each of them and hauls them out with his truck. Mm. He stuffs them in the barrels. When he gets to the lake at three in the morning, he straps the barrels into the boat so they don't tip over while he's driving the boat out into the lake. Yeah. And when he reaches the center, he rolls the two barrels into the water and the water rushes in because of the bullet holes and the barrels sink. Mm. He wow. makes it home just as the sun is coming up. And Alice told him, quote, you smell like death warmed over, end quote. Jeez. He's, they're cold hearted. Yeah. Jeez. Now, after they go missing, the police still like to talk to Gerald and Alice because Claire is on them like white on rice. Mm -hmm. And they talk to him separately. Alice cries. She's emotional. Gerald's pissed that his former mother-in-law says that he has anything to do with the disappearance of Virginia or the boys. And one of the investigators said that Gerald was visibly shaken while he was sitting there hmm. talking to them, okay. that he couldn't even hold a cup of coffee. And the police are like, mm, he's nervous. He's more nervous than he is pissed off. <laughs> and it seems like he's covering something up, but they don't have anything. Right. They feel in their gut that Alice and Gerald had something to do with the disappearance of Virginia, Reagan and Richard. Sure. I mean, they, they think he's jittery. So after this interview, when he can't even hold his cup of coffee, before he walks out of this interview, he just sort of gets up and abruptly leaves. He says to the police, quote, even if there was a crime, you can't prove it because there's no body, end quote. Why would you say that? Yeah. What a moron. So they ask him and Alice both to take a polygraph test. Sure. And they say, nope. No, I'm not going to do it. And then they ask, why won't you take the polygraph test? 
on the principle. It's just on principle. I'm not taking it. <laughs> they both said the same thing on principle. Uh, They're in separate rooms, not taking a polygraph on principle. It's very well rehearsed. Yeah. Flair is going to pass away without solving the mystery of whatever happened to her daughter and her grandchildren. Mm. And she looked for them until the day that she dies. Wow. And years go by. And in 1982, after the neighbors and everyone else was talking that Gerald and Alice were the reason Virginia and the boys are gone, Gerald and Alice, they just pick up and move. Hmm. And suddenly they go to Chadwick, Missouri. Okay. For 12 more years, nothing happens. But when they move, they take with them Alice's youngest daughter, Erica. Missouri was good to them. Alice took a nursing job and Gerald became a house husband, cooking meals and caring for their daughter, Erica. But he got bored and he got his long haul trucking license. So he starts this company and his CB handle was cowboy. (laughs) I mean, I don't know why that's important, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Breaker, breaker, one none. This is cowboy. I remember my CB radio. I'm a murderer. <laughs> what was yours? What was your handle? Red Rob. Of course it was. Yeah. Yeah. I was too young to ever have a CB handle. Do you know how I got my first CB? How? <laughs> my dad was coming home one day. He was out on the side of the road? And No, and there was a <laughs> raccoon that had just been hit. And there was a taxidermist in our little small town. So he picked it up. Took it to him and sold him the pelt. Oh. And he gave me the money and I bought a CB radio. Well, if that's not just the sweetest little story I've ever heard. I know. (laughs) The pelt had (laughs) tire marks. (laughs) Tire marks over top of it. (laughs) I remember that to this day. You could have gotten a more expensive CB radio, but there were tire marks on it. No, you could have hit a fox and then I could have gotten one. I'm sorry. We digress. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we digress. His his CB handle was cowboy. Okay. But these two move again to Springfield, Missouri. But the police and the sheriff's department back in Wyoming, they're still looking at this case. And one of the officers is keeping his ears and eyes open. He was actually an acquaintance of Alice's oldest son, Todd. Hmm. Todd actually showed up at this officer's home when he was going through a messy divorce. Okay. The officer had once told Todd, call me if you need anything, because he knows that his mother and his stepfather are horrible people. And Todd tells him that he has seen the missing flyer for Richard and Reagan. Mm -hmm. And when he saw it, it brought up some old memories for him. Uh Oh, See, Todd once lived with his mother and his stepfather, Don Prunty near Cheyenne and the Remount Ranch, where they were caretakers. Mm-hmm. Don died, bad kidneys or liver. Todd right. can't remember. Right. But he and his mother at one point became drinking buddies. By the way, Todd's 14 at the time. Jeez. These two start drinking. Alice gets a little misty and sentimental, and she tells Todd a story. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> okay. She tells him that 20 years before, when she was married to Ron, that he'd been very abusive toward her and that at the time she was afraid of him. So one night when he was asleep, she got Ron's twenty-two. She shot him in the back of the head while he was sleeping. Wow. She dragged him out of the trailer, put him in a barrel, rolled him down to this abandoned mine at the Remount Ranch. Hmm. She tells Todd that he got what he deserved. And now 20 years later... Todd needs to get this story off his chest after he sees that Richard and Reagan are missing. Right. 
So police look into what he's told them, and they realize no one had seen or heard from Ron since the winter of 1974. Mm. He wasn't drawing any social security, nothing. And he was he was a veteran. Right. He's a ghost, literally and figuratively both. Yeah, I was probably to say, yeah. He's been in and out of mental hospitals. There are no more records of him in any hospital. So if Alice killed Ron, she and Gerald probably killed Virginia and the boys. Of course. So they try to find the body or the remains of Ronnie Holtz. They coordinate with the Cheyenne police to search the Remount Ranch. And everybody knew there was an abandoned gold mine shaft there. Mm. And it was a place where dead animals on the ranch would be dumped because it was so deep, 90 feet deep, 12 feet across. Wow. And the mine shaft is really dangerous. So no one would ever go down there because it's not safe. Mm -hmm. And when they get there and they think they're going to go down there and look for Ronnie, they decide to call off the search because they couldn't put anybody in danger. And they don't have anything to go on still because there are no bodies. And this also becomes a cold case along with the disappearance of Virginia, Richard, and Reagan. Mm. Eleven more years pass. (laughs) Without so much as a peep. And Alice and Gerald are living their best lives because Gerald now has a long-haul trucking company that's really, really successful. Then in 2005, the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation gives both Virginia Uden and Ron Holtz's cases some attention. More resources, more eyeballs. And an investigator goes through the cold case files and they decide to focus on Alice and the disappearance of Ron. Hmm. That's the easy one, they think, because they've got, you know, testimony from her son. Low-hanging fruit. January 18th, 2005, the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation makes a surprise visit to Chadwick, Missouri, and the home of Alice and Gerald Uden. Hmm. Gerald is now this trucker, so he's not home. Alice answers the door. She's a grandmother. She's gray. She's old. And they say, will you answer a couple questions? And she says, yeah, sure. Come on in. You want some coffee? So they start chatting her up and ask her about past relationships and marriages. And she conveniently leaves Ron Hulse off her list of husbands Hmm. like he did not exist ever in her life. If I don't say anything, they might not know. (laughs) So... Immediately, they are intrigued, and they ask her about Ron, point blank. And when she hears his name, she falls out of her chair, like almost fainting on them. What? Like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) They've kind of caught her off guard. I mean, it has been 30 years since she killed him. True. And when they ask her about her son, Todd's story about shooting Ron, she says, oh, that didn't happen. I just made that up as a cautionary tale because he was an abusive man. She tells them she divorced him and they moved on. So these police officers leave, but then they go to Erica Hayes, Alice's youngest daughter. And when they get to Erica, Alice has called her in advance. Alice calls her little girl. Well, she's not a little girl anymore. Calls her daughter and says, Todd tattled on me. Uh. Quote, you're going to hear that I killed somebody, end quote. And when Erica asks her, well, is it true? Did you? Her mother says, yes. Wow. Because I was protecting you. 
They ask Erica if she knows anything about Virginia or the boys, and Erica tells investigators that she doesn't know, but she has an inkling of her own. She tells him that she thinks Gerald had something to do with the disappearance of Virginia, Richard, and Reagan. She doesn't have any proof, but that's what she thinks. She doesn't think her mom had anything to do with it. And when they press Erica, she tells him that once in a rather nonchalant way, Gerald had told her, if you need to get rid of a body, you need pigs. What? Yeah. Okay. Because pigs will eat anything. Oh, jeez. And it made me think of the book Hannibal, where they're feeding bodies to pigs. Oh, yeah. Erica tells them that she thought it was a twisted joke, but now she's afraid for Virginia and the boys because in 1980, Alice and Gerald had pigs. Remember, he built the pen. He had the pen, yeah. So they go back to this old house in Wyoming and they excavate the area where the hog pen used to be and they're looking for evidence of the murders and they find nothing. 200 square meters of nothing. Right. Another eight years go by. Jeez. And when it's April of 2013, they decide to put more eyes and more ears because they felt bad that Virginia's mom had worked until her dying day. Right. Until she was 92 Mm. to look for her daughter. A few months later, a big team goes back to Remount Ranch in the abandoned shaft and they look for a day and a half and they find pieces of a barrel. And inside that, they find a human skeleton. And in the back of the skull was a bullet hole. Wow. It matched the story that Todd told police. And they track down Ron's daughter from his first marriage. She's in Alaska. They get her DNA, and it's a match. There you go. So now they have the remains. And on September 26, 2013, they arrest Alice. Mm. They get a warrant, they go to Missouri, and they take her into custody. And how old is she at this She point? is 74. Jeez. And Gerald is out on the road, long-haul trucker. He's sure. out. Sure. When they question her, she tells them that she doesn't even know who Ron Holtz is. <laughs> what? Nice try. Yeah. Then agent Tina Trimble pulls out a photograph of the skull. She shows it to Alice and says, do you know who this is? (laughs) And Alice says, no. And the agent says, it's Ron Holtz. And she says, I kid you not, Alice says, is it? Hmm. (laughs) Wow. They give Alice a chance to tell her story, to come clean. Okay. She tells Alice that they have him. So she says, well, it's because he was threatening to kill Erica because she cried. Right. She was just a little girl. She's screaming. And he ran in and said he was going to kill her. And I grabbed a twenty-two rifle and shot him in the back of the head. And how did he get in that hole? I put him there. Wow. I got him into the barrel and rolled him into my car to the back door and to the trunk and took him up to the mine and put him in there. Wow. Then she asks, are you going to take me to jail? And what do you think the investigator says? Oh, let me think about that for like 0.05 seconds. Sure. Yes, I am. <laughs> they tell Alice they can go to the prosecutor, but mm-hmm. she has to tell the whole truth. Sure. And when they ask what Gerald said to her about it, she says nothing. Hmm. She doesn't say anything. Okay. It's been almost 40 years now, and Alice is finally going to be held accountable. Right. But they're going to use this arrest to their advantage. So Alice is charged with one count of first-degree murder for killing Ron Holtz. 
They hoped that would make Gerald want to talk. So they call Gerald and they tell him, Alice has been arrested. But they don't tell him what she's arrested for. Ah. They only say she's been arrested for what happened in Wyoming. Ah. Well, lots has happened in Wyoming. (laughs) Yeah. Sneaky, sneaky. Yeah, smart on their part. And he doesn't ask. I'm sure because he's guilty of sin. Sure. So Gerald drives from Missouri to Wyoming, and when he arrives, he immediately starts talking, singing like a canary. (laughs) And he says to them, I don't know why you arrested Alice. You arrested the wrong person. (laughs) Gerald tells them, quote, I don't know how she could know anything about it because really she had nothing to do with it. For 33 years, I've said no, I never did nothing. But now you guys are here, and I have to assume you found some bodies or done something else. And I got to tell you, if you found bodies, it's a miracle, end quote. (laughs) What a dummy. Yeah. He thinks Alice has been arrested for the boys. And so he told them she didn't do it. I did it. He tells police that Virginia was after him just for child support, and Alice was mad about it because they weren't his biological children. And she tells him, you better do something about it. Quote, I was paying her 150 a month. I'm trying to juggle two women, and it ain't flying. <laughs> and so finally, I just went off, and I said, I've had it. I'm going to solve this problem. And so I did, end quote. Wow. He tells him exactly what he did, how he shot Everybody, he tells it in detail, and he ends the story with, quote, and then they were all three dead that fast. It was 10 seconds, and they were gone, end quote. Gee whiz. Gerald tells police that he put their bodies in steel drums. Wonder where he got that idea. Yeah. Poked holes in the drums and then took them out to Fremont Lake and watched them sink as they filled up with water. Mm. Gerald then got rid of the gun and tried to get rid of the station wagon. Here we go. Quote, I tried to roll it over the damn cliff and you think it would go over the cliff? And the police officer said, not so much. And Gerald goes, not so much. (laughs) Oh, man. Quote, I didn't get any pleasure out of doing that. None. But it did stop the child support. End quote. So let me guess, this guy really wasn't a Mensa candidate. No. No. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. I just thought it was funny. Do you think that fly? Not so much. <laughs> oh, man. Not so much. Oh, what a moron. He denied that Alice had anything to do with it. He had no remorse and he didn't seem to care. And they arrested him and took him to jail. 33 years after he kills them, he's charged with three counts of first-degree murder. And on November 1st, 2013, 71-year-old Gerald agrees to plead guilty. Wow. He gets a plea deal, three life sentences. Alice wants to go to trial. But a tip came in that Ron wasn't the first husband that she'd murdered. Mm. Nearly 40 years of the law is catching up. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow. Because she's 75, Alice is awaiting trial, and police get a tip about her second husband, Don Prunty, who died at 45 from a bunch of illnesses from his alcoholism. There's no autopsy, Mm -hmm. but police think that Alice poisoned Don Prunty. Mm. They go through his medical records, they're looking for clues, and in the medical chart, it's noted that Alice was giving Don something that would help stop his drinking. (laughs) Remember? Yep. And the symptoms described 
were exactly what antifreeze poisoning looks like. She was. So they have Don's remains exhumed, but he had been embalmed and they couldn't get anything from his remains to prove he'd been poisoned. Right. So that's unclear. But she, she probably killed him too. Yeah. May 2014, her trial begins. Her son, Todd Scott, testifies that Ron was in bed sleeping when she shot him. Defense said it was self-defense. He also tells his mother while he's on the stand how much he despises her. Mm. Mom, I hate your guts. Wow. On May 8th, 2014, the jury goes out. 13 hours later, they acquitted her of murder one, but she got murder two for shooting her husband in the head and hiding him in a barrel and a mine shaft. They didn't think it was premeditated. She's sentenced to life in prison. Five years later, she died there. Then two days after Alice passes away, Gerald comes forward and says, look, I didn't kill him. Alice did it. Ugh. Alice killed Virginia and the boys. Uh-huh. So now that she's gone, he's just going to blame everything on Alice. Of course. And on September of 2019, the court rejected his attempt to withdraw <laughs> his confession that mm-hmm. it was coerced into his guilty plea right. and that Alice was the killer. He tried again in August of 2023 and again was denied. But killing people was a solution to a problem for both Gerald and Alice. And they held these secrets together and loved each other very much. Wow. Today, Gerald Uden is in the Wyoming Medium Correctional Institution in Torrington, Wyoming. He will be there until he draws his last breath. But that is the story of Gerald and Alice. Till death do them part, right? Yeah. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. The wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, Rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. You know, I can't even imagine, you know, keeping this a secret for 30, 40 years, having this on your head. I mean... Good grief. Yeah, but think about it. They didn't care. Yeah. So Alice would marry, and then when she got in the situation, she didn't like it. Yeah. You know, twice. Yeah. <laughs> Just get rid of it. And then when she meets Gerald, I think she basically said to him, this is how you do it. Get rid of them. Yeah. Because it was all about them. Yeah. It was all about her. And then once she had Gerald, it was all about them. Yeah. Well... Yeah, I, all I can say is good riddance. You know? Yeah, I just don't understand how you can keep that Ugh. away from police yeah. for 40 years. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Crazy. Well, 
They're done. She's gone. He's in prison. Yep. End of story. And he's pointing the finger. Alice. Alice did it, not me. (laughs) Exactly. Good Lord. Well, let's visit some other stupid criminals. Let's. All right, with a little bless your heart. Well, bless your heart. All right, number one. I'm calling this, this is absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, positively foolproof. Okay. That means something bad's going to go wrong. <laughs> well, the end of that is maybe. <laughs> Criminals often think they're smarter than they are. But in this particular tale, here's a couple of masterminds who thought they'd, you know, come up with a foolproof fraud scheme. Okay. Foolproof fraud. Yes. Now, this happened way back in 1996. A couple of Indiana teenagers believed that they'd hit upon an unbeatable system for hanging bad paper. And if you've ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who is Frank Abagnale, not Abagnale. Abagnale Jr. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He was a check forger. And the FBI, they knew knew him as a paper hanger. A paper hanger. Yep. yep, Now checks are electronic. Yeah. Yeah. Paper hanger is someone who wrote bad checks, right? Anyway, can you believe that you would just write on a piece of paper? This is what I'm going to pay you. (laughs) (laughs) Think about it in the beginning. This is what I'm going to pay you and you're going to have it. I can remember being in college, like going to the pizza place and they would have pictures of people's checks. (laughs) Is this you? You bounce a check to us. You owe us money. Yeah. You write a check and, you know, if you get a check from someone, you're hoping that it clears. Just hope it clears the bank. Yeah. Anyway, they were sorry, in, sorry. That's right. They'd inscribe these checks to merchants in disappearing ink. And by the time these checks reached their bank, well, they'd be blank and thus uncollectible. Disappearing ink. Yep. Yep. Okay. Now, five merchants reported receiving $2,000 in checks written in purple ink <laughs> that soon faded before their very eyes. <laughs> there it goes. Yep. The scheme looked like it was off to a good start. All right. However, the master plan did not take into account that the act of writing leaves marks on the check in the form of indentations or that the missing ink can be raised by various processes performed at crime labs. The blank fields, therefore, weren't blank at all. They were soon caught afterwards and they were prosecuted. Yeah, crime school 101, you get the pad of paper. If somebody's written something, you take the pencil and cross to see what they wrote. Yep. All right, number two, 911, what's your burglary? (laughs) (laughs) Just after midnight on the 20th November of 1986, I'm going way back. We're doing a little retro this week. It's historical uh, bless your heart week. Yes, it is. And this happened in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, three policemen followed up on a mysterious 911 call. The emergency dispatcher had given them the address, which is, you know, of course, traceable by computer, but was unable to describe the problem because the caller had hung up as soon as the 911 operator had answered the call. Dispatch immediately thought, well, it could be a hostage taking, a medical emergency. So immediately the police were dispatched to the scene, but had no idea what they might be walking into. Okay. They didn't try to call the number back? Nobody would answer, I would assume. Oh, okay, okay. I mean, if that person just hung up on it. Yeah. Okay. Upon arrival at the address that they'd been sent to investigate, the officers found, here we go. Yeah. One and a quarter pounds of cocaine, more than 500 grams of crack, and two pistols and more than $12,000 in cash. 
But that was it? Or was there a person there too? As well as three very surprised crooks. <laughs> <laughs> now, though the three people in the apartment fled, two of them, Pauline Webley, 27 of Florida, and Genevieve Hyde, 32 of New York, were caught later and charged with possession of cocaine. Possession of a lot, man. Yeah. yeah. So what chain of events caused all of this? Yeah, yeah really? Yeah. What? Well, one of the, well, once again, a Menza candidate tried to dial 921, the first few digits of their gang leader's phone number, <laughs> but instead inadvertently had dialed 911 and reached the police. So, as Steve Urkel would say, Oops. Did I do that? Oh, wow. Wow. Well. Yeah, there you go. So, okay. Divine intervention. Yeah, exactly. All right. Number three. This happened in Leeds, Alabama. Okay. (laughs) Love Alabama. This has been all over the news this week, so it's awesome. A man crashed his car outside a Bass Pro Shop in Alabama. He then stripped (laughs) down to his birthday suit, plunged into a giant aquarium inside the store. The ordeal happened Thursday night in front of the shock shoppers in the town just outside of Birmingham, Leeds Police Paul Irwin said. The 42-year-old Alabama man did a cannonball leap into the aquarium and then stood (laughs) under the waterfall. Cannonball! (laughs) And if you've ever been to a Bass Pro Shop, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, those tanks are huge! Oh, they're awesome. (laughs) He left the water to yell at two officers, then dove back into the aquarium, police said. (laughs) He's butt-ass naked, too, isn't he? Okay. The man eventually climbed over the side of the aquarium and fell to the concrete floor below. Ouch, ouch. Yeah, he hurt himself. Police then apprehended him. The news site AI.com reported. He faces several charges, including public lewdness, all right? Yeah, no clothes. Yep, disorderly conduct. Obvious. Yep. And criminal mischief. Also obvious. Right? (laughs) And the most heinous act of all, as far as I'm concerned. What? Disturbing the fish. The fish. <laughs> this poor fish must have been freaking out. I don't know if I if I was a man, I don't know if I'd jump in naked <laughs> oh my for God. a bunch of fish. Well, the thing is, I saw the video. Uh, they they've got it all on video, and he's like pressed up against the front of the aquarium, <laughs> nude butt naked, you know. And then when you see him fall out and hit the the, the pavement, I mean, he looks like you know a, a wounded salmon flopping around on the Mm, pavement. mm, Well, mm. then the police apprehend him. They take him and cuff him behind, but he's laying face down. They're dragging him across the cement floor. (laughs) It's awesome. I loved it. I was laughing the whole time. <laughs> yeah, so, so it was funny. So, so there's your uh, there's your dumb criminals this week, and we'd like to thank Nicole Howard in our In Laws and Outlaws for that little tippy, that little tidbit <laughs> of hilarity. Yep, yep. Well, if you have a bless your heart, or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, just like Nicole did. Yep. Jeez. <laughs> His heart really needs blessing because I bet they had to take him to the hospital if he was naked and they... Talk about road rash. Dragged him all the way to the car. Ouch. That God. If you have a blister... Hope they polish that floor. (laughs) Go to hitchtohomicide.com where there's a pull-down menu. You can also suggest a case. Yep. Oh, my gosh. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Keep your pants on, everybody. No cannonballs. Holy Lord. That's all we have this week. (laughs) Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. (laughs) Bye, (laughs) y'all.